So find your way to John 14. Like I've met a life's goal, we reach John 14. John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Oh my, read ahead, contemplate, think about it. There's so much to, to establish just a strong foundation for whatever you're going through there. John 14, but I'm going to back up to chapter 13, verse 36, just to give a little context. So here we go. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself. And where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you have known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Now, Lord, open our eyes to see You and to see Your Father in and through You and to see our hope. Oh God, give hope to hearts here, give humbling to hearts here, give understanding minds and well-prepared hearts to receive the implanted Word that is able to save. In Jesus we pray. Amen. The hearts of the disciples were surely troubled on that evening. They just heard that one of their own number was about to betray Christ. And now Judas has vanished off in the night. And learn further that Jesus Himself is about to leave them. They don't know where He's going. All they know is they're not going to be allowed to follow there. And when Peter asks about it, he's told that he'll even deny Jesus three times before the evening is up. Or before the morning comes. And so you can just imagine how troubled they are in that moment when Jesus says in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Unless I miss my guess, the trouble extends beyond the upper room that night. I think I can safely assume that there are some present here this morning with troubled hearts. And if not, if yours isn't, it will be. But maybe that's where you are. There's... Things aren't just going on in your life right now the way you thought they should or the way you thought they would. There are concerns that are weighing in on you. Maybe it's trouble within your family. Maybe it's trouble in your personal life. Maybe some secret sin you just can't seem to shake. Or a heartache no one else knows about and seems like maybe doesn't even care about. 
Or maybe you're just being weighed down by all the troubles that are in the world around us. Ukraine, our own country. Um, you just open up an app and look and there's plenty to go around. Whatever troubles are troubling you as a Christian, let me remind you that there is hope. Amen. And that's what we want to talk about here. The comfort Jesus is giving. And so, first thing to, to, to see in this passage is our troubled hearts find their rest by turning to Christ again in faith. Verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now there's a reason this verse is treasured by troubled Christians for the past 2,000 years. I'm sure you've heard this read at funerals. Perhaps you've, like me, heard it read at the bedside of a dying saint. It's a verse that gives us comfort because it's, it's a verse that shifts our attention away from the source of our trouble and fixes them on the source of our help in Christ. So let's think about this verse and consider how it redirects our hearts to hope in a way that maybe you need right now, in a way you will surely need in time to come. The first thing we see in this verse is, notice how it reminds us that we do have trouble in this life. All those preachers that tell you that you won't if you follow Jesus, they're liars, turn them off, throw them away. I mean, why else would He say to them, let not your heart be troubled? Except that they're troubled. And He knows it. He can see it on their faces. And what's more, He can feel it in His own soul as well. One of the wonderful things about having Jesus as a friend and Savior is that He he knows what we're going through. He understands our griefs and troubles because He likewise has faced things like these. Just a few verses earlier in John, in John 13, 21, we read that Jesus was troubled in His spirit using exactly this same word. It's a word that means to be shaken inwardly. Uh, to be twisted with, with a kind of an inner turmoil. To be, to be filled with, with agitation or concern. Back in John 12, 27, Jesus even turns to His disciples and says, Now is my soul troubled. Listen, oh dear one, listen. Jesus understands a troubled heart. Never believe the, lie, the devil's lie that he doesn't or that he can't in some way. Never give in to that evil voice in your own head that says to you, no one else understands me, no one cares. Because even if it was true that no one else on earth understands or cares, there stands one in heaven who has been tempted in every way as you are yet without sin. And who can give grace to help in time of need as you turn to Him. Friend, as a believer, you just have to believe that. You have to lay hold of that. Because notice, second, it is by looking in Christ to faith, by believing Him, that we indeed find help for our troubled hearts. Let not your heart be troubled, He says. How? How do I not let it be troubled, Lord? By believing. By looking to God in Christ through faith. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Otherwise, instead, and believe in Me. So what is He saying? He's saying, and isn't this so often very true? He's saying, you know, the problem is your focus has been upon your trouble. 
It's all you can think about. It's the reason you can't sleep at night. It's what's got you in a fix right now. But, but, but instead, turn and set your heart's focus on me. Fix your attention upon me. Listen to my voice. Hear my words of promise. And I'll be present to give peace to you. It is drawing near to Christ by faith that brings comfort to a troubled heart. And you might not realize this yet, but this is, this is a very practical exhortation. This is not just a theory Jesus is giving. He's, he's giving you a lifeline to take hold of in those times when you are feeling overwhelmed. I mean, pay attention to His words. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Now, notice how practical this is. Notice that, that the faith He's talking about here is a faith that has a focus. It is fixed upon something, or rather a someone. He's not just telling you, believe! In some nebulous, sort of unattached way. And that's what the world does. You know, just believe in general. By faith you have all things. Just believe. Well, that's nonsense. That kind of merely feelings-oriented faith that is shooting up in the clouds at nothing in particular is, is of no help. But this is a faith that is fixed specifically upon Christ. Fix your attention, he says, on God, on Christ. Trust Him to keep His promises. And notice that this whole thing is very personal. The remedy for a troubled heart is to take a fresh look at the faithfulness of God in Christ. To draw near to... Him. In fact, notice the way he puts this. There's, there's actually a little bit of ambiguity here in this believe in God, believe also in me, because just by nature of the language that he's using here, it, it could be a statement and a command, or it could be two commands. It could be a statement and a command. You're already trusting in God, so now put your trust in me as well. Right? Because I am God. I and the Father are one, he says elsewhere. So, so you trust in God already, trust in me. That's one way to look at The other way, and I think this is probably more likely, is two commands. Put your trust in God, which you're not doing because you're fretting, and also put your trust in me because really it's one and the same trust. But, but either way, the point is, oh dear one, stop sitting there mulling over your troubled feelings and choose to look to Christ in faith. In practical means, that, that means turning to Him in His promises. Taking hold of Him by faith. Clinging to Him. Because you believe what He said. You believe that He'll do exactly what He says He'll do. And it, and it is a conscious thing. You, 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 de, you determine, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Jesus at His Word and I'm going to believe what He says. We see an example of that in the Old Testament in the psalm that we... Uh, partially used in confession. Psalm 42, verse 11. David praying says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Notice he's talking to himself. He's kind of slapping himself around and saying, I know I'm downcast. I know this is, I, I'm struggling here. Soul, wake up. Why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil within me? Here's the answer. Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And so here's the first application this morning. When trouble begins to grip your heart, immediately go back to this verse. Begin to do what Christ tells you to do here. Take Christ at His Word and do what He says. Stop 
and look to Him. Remind yourself of all that He has promised. And by the way, that assumes you know what He promises. That this is why you must memorize Scripture. This is why you must store the Word in your heart that, that you might be ready to fix your hope upon that because this is what gives you hope. So, so take that Word and say to your heart, have this conversation there within yourself. Look, heart, I've got it's Christ I can trust. Look, heart, believe His promises. Look to Him in faith. And keep doing that and keep clinging to that promise until you begin to realize His presence. So Christ gives us these promises that we are to cling to. Well, what kind of promises has He given us? This particular instance, how is He giving them comfort beyond just saying, look to me in faith, what promises does He give? Well, notice in this passage, Jesus gives comfort to their troubled hearts and to our troubled hearts by reminding us what He has prepared for us. Again, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. And here's a promise. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you uh, to Myself that where I am you also may be. And you know the way to where I'm going. This is another well-loved passage, isn't it? And it's well-loved for a good reason. Because the promises of Jesus here are rich and deep. There's a reason, he tells them, that he's going away and he must go away. He's not abandoning them. He's not leaving them behind. He is going to prepare a place for them. Let's look at that place. The promise that it is to us. It's written in the book because it's for us too. The first thing Jesus wants us to see here is that he wants us to know that he has indeed prepared a place for us who belong to him. In my Father's house, he calls it. Earlier, Jesus used those same words to describe the temple in Jerusalem as God's house. That's John chapter 2. But, but, but here He doesn't mean a temple of stone. Here He means God's eternal dwelling place where God's presence is to be found. I was reading in my devotions this morning, Psalm 65, and stumbled across a passage that talked about entering into God's house where there is His steadfast love and, and, and where we find satisfaction. That's the house we're talking about here. This is the, the, the eternal dwelling place where God is. And, and Jesus says, in that eternal dwelling place where God is, there are many, many rooms. Lots of space. This word rooms in the original is the word monet. It's only used here in one other place in the New Testament. It's a, it's a word that, that basically means a place you get to stay. A place that you are able to remain. It's actually the verb form of the noun. I'm sorry, it's actually the noun form of the verb Jesus uses when He tells us we must abide in Him and abide in His Word. That word abide means to continue, to settle down, to go to a place and just stay there and make yourself at home there. And the point is, this place Jesus is preparing isn't just a place that we're going to get to visit one day on vacation. This is the place where we're going to be welcomed and stay. And so look at some of the things He tells us about it. First of all, He says it's an abiding place. This is a place where we get to belong with God forever. As opposed to this place you're in right now. Right? You understand right here now in this present age, you have no abiding city. 
Hebrews 13 makes that really clear. We don't belong here. That's why you run into so much trouble here. This is not our true and final home. Even on our, our very best days, the pleasures that we have, and praise God for those pleasures, those pleasures here and now cannot last. They're always going to fade away. Do you ever wonder why sometimes you you feel like you don't belong? It's because you don't, right? Because this is not your true home. But what Jesus promises here is that by His death and resurrection, when He says, I go, He means I go to the cross, I go to the grave, I go to the resurrection and the Father's right hand, I go to prepare a place. He is preparing a permanent dwelling for us who are His. It is an abiding place. It's a home we get to stay forever. One that can never ever be taken from us. There are believers right now who probably will lose their homes in Ukraine very shortly. There are believers across Africa who have been chased out of their homes. We haven't faced that. Lord willing, we will never face that. But you have no abiding home here. Your abiding home is there. Second, notice it is an abundant home. Notice the stress here on the abundance of it. In my Father's house are many rooms. The point being is that there is no shortage of space. Some of our families here ask the question from time to time, where are we going to put another child? Cue the child. Where are we going to put another child? Where are we going to put it? We're, 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 we're glad to welcome them. It's, it's a blessing, but where are we going to put them? God never has that problem. There is room and more to spare. Which means there's room for you. We're not going to get there and find the place has been overbooked. We won't be turned away at the gate because, well, you know, you know, COVID restrictions and all, we can only let so many in at a time. No, Christ has made provisions for all of those He redeems. Some of you remember the VBS song we used to sing. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. Oh, if you missed that one, you missed a blessing. Something about in the front yard we play football or something. That wasn't biblical. But. But, but, but again, there's this... The point is there's a place for you if you're in Christ. You won't be turned away. It's a big place. Now the old Latin Vulgate, when Jerome translated, he actually mistranslated the word Monet uh, into a mansion with, with the emphasis being on the lavishness of the place. It's opulence. You know, I've got a mansion in glory as the songs sometimes go based on that. But the point of this word is not at all the lavishness or richness of the structure. The point is the lavish abundance of the welcome that we will receive and the love that will be ours there in the presence of God forever. Amen. And so it is an abundant place of love that we get to call home. J.C. Ryle describes it this way. He says, home is a place where we are genuinely loved for our own sakes and not for our gifts and possessions. The place where we are loved to the end, never forgotten and always welcome. Believers are in a strange land in this life. The life to come, they will be at home. 
He continues, likewise, there is plenty of room in heaven for all of God's family. There will be room for all believers and room for all sorts of believers, for little saints as well as great ones, for the weakest believer as well as for the strongest. The feeblest child of God need not fear. There will be no place for him. None will be shut out but impenitent sinners and obstinate unbelievers. Do you get the point? Here is a place for you to come and remain. Here you are to be welcomed and loved. Now, you may be someone, and I speak to Christians every once in a while, more often than I wish was true, Who you may be someone who's, who's never felt that you truly belong anywhere your whole life. You've always felt that you didn't fit. You, you struggle to, to, to feel like you're a part of anything, to feel loved, even among people who, who say that they love you. And that's an incredibly painful place to live. But hear what Christ is saying to you. This is the place you do belong. He's going to prepare it as He tells His disciples there. And there you will be welcomed with open arms and given a home right near the heart of God. Oh, by the way, church, we're to be a reflection of that now. Where the wounded and the weary and the broken come and those who don't feel like they fit and because of the love of Jesus that already dwells among us, that they're made to feel welcome and loved. But Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Place! Look at that word place. What it really means is a, well, a for real kind of place. Not a fantasy. This isn't just an illustration that he's using that we need to figure out how we can possibly apply it. Nor is he talking about some nebulous, wispy realm of clouds and vapors where we float around with hearts. Jesus means a real, permanent place near the heart of God where we will be welcomed and loved together in these resurrected existence in His presence. Did you see the way He assures us of that here? Verse 2, He says, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I mean, what? Do you think I'm lying? Did you think I'd go to all this trouble of coming, dying, rising again, suffering for sins, ascending to the Father's right hand if I wasn't serious about carrying this through to the end? No. I've got a place prepared. If I get it prepared, I'm coming back for you. Which is the next thing. This home, Jesus prepared, will be filled with the people He loves because He is coming back for His bride. Look at it again, verse 3. He says, I will come again and take you to Myself. Dude, that's a promise. That's a promise of the second coming of Christ. And it's a promise that is packaged in a picture of what a bridegroom does on his wedding day in that culture. In that culture, weeks before the wedding would take place, the groom would go away from his bride to prepare a place for his bride to come home to. And then at the wedding ceremony, he would come for her just as he promised. And he would, they literally use these words, take her to himself. He would take her to himself and bring her to the home He prepared that they might be together for all of their lives. Right? 
There's a reason the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. It's for this picture. Listen, Christ is coming for His bride. You have not been abandoned. A place is prepared and He is coming for you. And, and so we understand just as surely as Christ came the first time, lived and died and rose again, so He is coming a second time. There you shout hallelujah. Isn't that the promise? First Thessalonians 4.17 that we who are alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will be caught up together with them, the other saints who have died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He's coming for His bride. He's going to sweep her off her feet and carry her to His home to love her forever. This is the blessed hope that secures the Christian's heart and keeps us from despair no matter what's going on in this world. And so Luke 21 says, Straighten up, O bent Christian. Straighten up. Lift up your heads. Look to Jesus because your redemption is drawing near. And when He comes, he will enfold us in His everlasting arms of love forever. We get just a preview of that day. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. John writes, and after speaking of the bride, says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Talking about the same thing Jesus is talking about. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's our hope. And so as Christians, we've got a home prepared for us where there is plenty of room and plenty of love. And Christ Himself has promised to return and take us there as His bride. That's why He had to leave. And that's where He went. And it is from there that He will return, as He says in verse 4. I love this. He just tacks us on. And you know the way to where I'm going, right? And they do, or they should. They just don't realize it yet. Because the way... It's not a path they must trod, but a person they must trust. Jesus points them to that here. That He Himself, this is the third thing, Christ Himself is the way who brings us to God and gives us an assurance of eternal life with Him forever. Verse 5 and 6, Thomas said to Him, Lord, we don't know where You're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas. Now, we haven't heard from Thomas in a while. Peter's been the one speaking up. But you'll notice Peter falls silent here. After Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, Peter's lost probably in thought and trying to figure out how that is. We don't hear from him again for several chapters. But Thomas speaks up to speak for the group. Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? It's one of those whoosh kind of things, right? Right over the top of your head. You ever have those? Look what Jesus says. Again, those familiar words. Try to hear them fresh. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, boom, this is, this is a rich theological bomb of a statement. And it really is the very heart and soul of the gospel that gives us hope. If you notice, it's deep and complex. There's layers here. We could spend hours just on these verses. We won't, but we could. But at the same time, even the youngest child in this room who is able to comprehend conversation can understand this verse. And so Jesus begins by saying, I am the one you need. You know what He's doing here? He's making sure we understand just exactly who He is. Just exactly who this is that we are being called to trust. It's not going to surprise you that that little I am is something we've seen before. I am, not just said in the way that Greek would just say, I am something, but seven times in John's Gospel, we have this statement, ego, I, me, where Jesus is identifying Himself, not just as the person standing in front of them, but as indeed God Himself speaking to them. The God of the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who met Moses at the burning bush. And Moses said, Who are you, Lord? And He said, I am. This God is speaking. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. If a mere man said the kind of things that follow after this I am, we would safely dismiss him as a nut. But if the one who is speaking to us here has shown himself to be God in the flesh, the Son come from heaven, the, the, the one who reveals the Father perfectly, who raises the dead and heals the sick, and will himself die and rise again, if that one speaks this way, we ought to listen. Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus has given one of these I am statements and then gone on to, to explain its content and, and why this ought to encourage us. And so, for example, back in John 6.58, He said, I am the bread of life. If you want to feed on life, you've got to come to Me. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. If you want to see the truth, you better come to Me. I am the good shepherd. If you want to be led into the way of life, you better come and follow me. And any one of these statements by itself is just mind-blowing. But here, Jesus piles them one on top of the other. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And really, they ought to be taken together like this because Jesus does bundle them so that we're kind of looking at something that's the way plus the truth plus the life. So that He is the way to God because He is the truth about God who brings us the very life of God. And so way, truth, and life are three dimensions of who the one Christ is as our one hope. Earlier in John... Um, well, first, let's look at each of these. Way, truth, and life. So I said they're bundled. They should stay together. But they also, each independently, give us a piece of the picture. And so Jesus says, I am the way. Now, what do you notice about that, by the way? I am the way. Not a way, right? He's not saying, here's an option for you to consider. Very definite. I am the way. The way to what? Well, the way to know God. The way to gain heaven. The way to get home. So earlier in John, Jesus had said something very similar. In John 10, verse 9, He said, I am the door. What is the door? The door is the way you enter or leave the building. I am the door. If anyone enters by Me, he will be saved. He will go in and go out and find pasture. I am the door. I am the way that you receive this life. And so the way home to God, again, is not a path that we discover or trod. It is a person that we trust. 
In other words, Christianity is not like Buddhism or, or any number of other religions. In Buddhism, there is a path to be followed. You look what Buddha did and you try to do the same. You try to follow the, the, the path that he discovered and by following that noble path, by your works and effort, you climb up the ladder of achievement until you reach whatever the goal is in that religion. In Christianity, there is no path. There is only a person. And you come to that person, Jesus by faith, trusting His achievement, not your own. Jesus doesn't blaze a trail for us to try our best to follow. He prepares a place and then promises to come get us. So He doesn't point and say, if you work really, really hard to be like me, maybe you'll make it. Instead He says, if you'll come and trust in me, I'll make sure you make it. Because I am the way. I give the life. I reveal the truth. Second, He is the truth. If you want access to God, you go to Christ because He is the way. If you want to know the truth about God, where do you go? Well, you go to Christ because He is the truth. He is the Word made flesh. God's own Word of self-revelation where God looks at us and says, here I am, here's what I'm like, here's what I'm doing. And so when we look at Jesus, we see God in truth. John 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, meaning with their own naked eyes, by their own efforts, but Jesus, the only begotten God who came down to us from the Father's side, He has made God known. In Christ, we see who God is. That's why verse 17 in that same passage says, well, the law came through Moses, right? A man can give us some instruction, but grace and truth came in Jesus. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God for who He really is. That's why He can say later down in verse 9 um, that whoever has seen Me, He's seen the Father. If you want to know God in truth, you must come to Christ who is the truth. And then there it says He is the life. John 1 verse 4 tells us that in Him was life and that life was the light of men. The very, the very life of God dwells in the person of Christ. John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have this life in Himself. The very life of the Father dwells alive in Christ so that John 5.21 can tell us the Son gives this life to whoever He wishes. But, but it's not just that the Son is the repository of life. It's not just that the Son has this life that He's able to give. He Himself is the life given. Remember the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he dies, yet shall he live. So life dwells in Him. Divine life. Everlasting life. All-powerful life. To have Him is to have this life. And so He is the way we must go. He is the truth we must believe. He is the life we must receive. 
And you see how all these three come together, come together to give us one picture of the Christ in whom we find hope. He is not just one way among others, one version of the truth we might prefer, one option for life we could choose. What does He say? I am the way, the truth, the life. And in case we miss the point, He says, no one comes to the Father except through Me. Dear one, believe that. And you receive this life. You know this truth. You have found this way. Thomas Akempis, and I might not like all that he's written, but in one of his meditations, as he's considering this verse, he hears Christ in effect saying, Follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the unalterable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straight way, the sovereign truth, true life, life ever-blessed, life uncreated. If you believe that, trust in Him, you will have this life. But notice also, if you believe that and trust in Him, you will be hated by this world. The absolute claims of Jesus are hated in a pluralistic world where each and every demands their own way, their own truth, their own source of life. You understand the world you live in right now has one truth claim, that there are no absolute truths to claim. No one way to anything. But clearly Jesus is making an absolute truth claim here in verse 6. It's one we simply can't get around. This is incredibly exclusionary. If He is the way, then all other ways are false. If He is the truth, then there is no true knowledge of God without Him. If He is the life, then without Him, That road leads to death. That's why He says no one, no one, no one can come to the Father except through Me. It's why the early church preached Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now for a lot of people today, that is just intolerable. Outrageous. And it is outrageous unless it's true. And you see, if this was a matter of me standing before someone saying, this is the only way because this is the one I chose and of course it's me so it has to be right and all you guys are wrong because I'm the standard of truth and if I love it, it's right. That's what we're saying? I'm an idiot. And that's nothing true about that. But you see, I'm not the one standing there saying, this is what I like, therefore you have to like it too. Jesus is the one standing there saying, This is me. And you will be judged based on this reality because there is no other reality for you to appeal to. But here's something we have to understand. Truth by its very nature is outrageous and exclusionary. You understand what I'm saying? 
If something is true, then whatever contradicts it is by definition false. If it is true that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then the answer 37 is wrong. And 42, and 98, and 137, and every other answer you might give to the question 2 plus 2 equals, every answer but 4 is wrong because only 4 is true. And so if Christ is indeed truth, if He is indeed way, if He is indeed life, if He is the one He claims to be, God the Son, who lived and died and rose again so that His blood paid the price to open the way to God, His life demonstrates the truth of God, and His resurrection guarantees new life in God, if He is all these things, then we must go to Him to have these things. These aren't claims we're making. These are claims we're receiving from Him. And you know what the truly amazing thing that the world misses is this. It's not really that amazing that there's just one way. What is absolutely astounding and amazing is that there is any way at all for sinful people like us to come and be reconciled to a holy God. God didn't know us that. God didn't have to create that. But God has given that graciously. How dare we slap His hand away and say, well, I need another option. And in fact, if you have eyes to see it, The hope of the Gospel in this verse is found in that little word, except. Look at it. No one comes to the Father except through Me. First of all, no one comes to the Father. That's the problem. That's our sin. Our sin is the barrier. Our sin is the problem. We won't come. God can stand and say, come, 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 come. But man in his sinfulness will not come. Sin has slammed the door from the inside. My sin, your sin, that's what's keeping us from God. But the reason Christ came is to kick down that door. To open wide for all those who will come through faith in Him. And that's what we see in this little word, except. This little word, except, says there is indeed hope. No hope at all, except. In the world of lost sinners cut off from God, there is hope in that word. Christ has created the one great exception to the general rule of lostness in this world. Christ has created the way for all those who have lost their way and are stumbling in the dark. Christ has has given the truth to all those who are befuddled with the cloudy images of their own mind. Christ has given life to all those who lie in the graves of death spiritually. At least for those who will trust Him. And it's Him. That's why He closes with His promise where we'll pick up Lord willing in a couple of weeks. And He says, if if you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you do know Him and you have seen Him. What's the point of that? It's this. All access to God comes in and through knowing Jesus. And dear one, this morning, this is His invitation to you. To know Christ is to know the Father. Amen. And from now on, meaning from that moment of faith, opening your eyes, giving life to your death, truth to your falsehood, putting you on the way when you were lost in the weeds, from now on, you do know Him and you have seen Him because I'm standing right here. And so there's the great question for you to consider. Have you entered this life by trusting this Christ for who He is? Are you 
drawing comfort in these troubling times by resting in this Christ by faith? Are you trusting His promise of life beyond this world of tears as that which gives you hope? Here's the wonderful thing. And I'll pray. Here's the wonderful thing. Trusting Him for all that He's promised there sort of backfills our life here. Sort of opens the door and the blessings of heaven that are ours and will only be experienced in their fullness in heaven sort of begin to flow backwards down that channel to us here. And in the middle of our suffering, our sorrow, our pain, our loss, we can taste the goodness of God's presence because the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is already feeding those into our lives, already showing us that reality. And though we don't get the fullness of it until later and we still suffer here, we are given the, 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 the taste of the blessing that is to be ours forever, even now. And that's what gives us comfort and hope. Father, boy, there's so much here. We've touched on so little of it. I pray even now that every mind here would grip that portion of this truth that they need to take home with them and begin to live upon. For some it may mean repenting and coming to Christ and believing His promise and stop dickering and battling with Him over wanting some other way or possibility and just to see the truth there is none. To surrender and come to Him. Others are arguing with you that they, can, they should stay in their misery because of this, that, or the other factor that their sin is too great or, or, or their suffering is too deep. And Lord, we don't ever want to make light of anyone's suffering. Suffering is terrible in a broken world. But Jesus, You are better than the suffering is bad. And You are able to draw near this one and to bring comfort and grace, the presence of Your Father here and now, that they will be theirs forever and ever. So give that grace, give that help, give that hope as we turn and entrust ourselves to You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.